text today. Uh, I think I was saying welcome. My name is Jeff. If I haven't met you, I'm the pastor here. Uh, and we're really glad that you're with us. Um, we are in week 31, I believe, of this series in the book of Acts. Um, we're going to be in this series until, I think, September. Uh, and then we'll wrap up the book of Acts. And then um, the plan is, tentatively, uh, right now, is that we will probably do a series uh, based around the Apostles' Creed that we just recited a, a few minutes ago, just to talk about the basics of uh, Christian doctrine uh, and and really wanting to show you where in the Bible the phrases in the Apostles' Creed are coming from uh, and give you a little bit of the history of why creeds uh, and and um, councils that have happened in the history of the church are really important. Uh, but today we're walking through the book of Acts, the very beginning of the church, and we're going to get to see Paul uh, in one of the most important places in his missionary journey. Uh, you may remember a number of years back, um, which is funny to me that I've been here long enough now that I can say that now. Remember years back? Um, but we did a, book, a series on the book of Ephesians. Uh, and so that church, the, the church at Ephesus, uh, is one of the churches in the Bible that we have the most uh, written about because we see them here in Acts. Uh, obviously, there's a letter written to them, and then they're mentioned again in Revelation. So uh, it's a really important moment in the history of the church. Now, if you were here last week, uh, you might remember that we actually see Paul get to the city of Ephesus last week. But this week, what we're going to see is Paul really uh, dig into his ministry with uh, Gentile unbelievers and also the Jews that are there. Uh, but the reason we would say that Ephesus is a really important place for Paul to be uh, is that Ephesus's, Ephesus' strategic position is uh, as a city um, in the ancient world made the city a really, really important place, both, again, in the history of the world, but also in the history of uh, the big C church uh, that we are a part of today and how the gospel spreads. And in fact, Ephesus was called, a nickname it had back then was the Treasure House of Asia, uh, so really important place. Uh, it's really the center of kind of materialism and worldly ambition, if you will. Uh, and so Ephesus is the site of the temple of Artemis or Diana, uh, which if you know, I think your elementary school history is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, and so there would be 127 marled, marbled pillars, uh, which would have risen uh, about 60 feet to support a, a humongous uh, ceiling. Many of uh, those pillars would have been inlaid with gold and rare gems. So this is opulent uh, worship of uh, this god. And so the temple had this humongous canopy uh, covering an area roughly 425 feet by 200 feet. Uh, so that's huge. Um, and it housed the image of Artemis, uh, who is supposed to have fallen from the stars. And this center, this temple was the sort of thriving center for a cult of fertility worship. So a lot of sexuality, uh, a lot of opulence going on in Ephesus. And so Ephesus also had become a place, uh, sort of a, a melting pot, a collecting place for superstition and kind of the what we would think of as the occult, the dark arts, if you will. Uh, and so this gives the context for what Paul writes to the eventual Christian church in the city of Ephesus in the book of Ephesians in chapter 6 of Ephesians where he says, you may know this verse, maybe you have a coffee cup with this uh, verse on it, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now we live in a very different uh, mindset than the people who would have 
heard that from Paul lived. We hear that and we think of it's kind of like a, a, an encouraging little motivational speech. But Paul is writing this to a group of people who for them, spiritual powers and darkness, as we're going to see in the text today, are very real and very much a part of their world. They had not been uh, raised as we have been in a post-enlightenment world where we've separated sort of spirituality from the real world. Uh, and we view those as two separate realms. Uh, even if you think of the language we would use, the supernatural Right? That's, that's a concept that didn't exist in the ancient world, that idea of something beyond the natural. They saw it as one thing. Uh, and so for Paul to write this in this context is really important. So that's the backdrop for the text today. Ephesus has become this gathering place for every kind of, think of the dark arts in your head, right? Witchcraft, magicians, clairvoyance, but also criminals, Con artists, murderers, uh, sexual perversion of all kinds was just kind of more open in this city. And it was, uh, Ephesus was kind of unusually agreeable to this, this kind of thing. So um, Paul is going to do what Paul does, and that is to boldly speak into and against the issues he sees in the city that God has called him to or that he finds himself in. And so Acts 19, we're going to start in verse 8. We're going to read a little, talk a little, read a little, talk a little. Um, I know this will come as a surprise to you, but today's sermon, unless I keep saying asides like this, should be shorter uh, than typically. So you have that to look forward to. Verse 8. No, don't say amen to that. Verse 8 of Acts 19. And he, Paul, entered the synagogue. Okay, that's the Jewish place of worship if you're just joining us. He entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Now, the disciples there doesn't mean the 12 disciples we know of in the, in the Gospels. It means anybody who's following Jesus. If you in this room are following Jesus, you are a lowercase d disciple. You follow Jesus. That's what that it means. It just means uh, apprentice or follower. And so that's who Paul is taking with him. Uh, and so Paul, as always, starts in the synagogue. Uh, he goes to the place that he has the most connection with. He's a Jew. Uh, he is trained in the Jewish ways. Uh, and he goes to the synagogue. And this is uh, one of his longest synagogue ministries. We see that it's three months, uh, which is a, a quite a good amount of time. And so his method is what it's been before. He's reasoning. Uh, or literally dialoguing is the word in English that we would use for that. He is exchanging. This is question and answer. This is a little bit like what we've been doing on Friday nights. Uh, it's not this, which is more of a lecture. It's we sit around in a circle and have a discussion. Some of us have insights into things that others of us don't, and we share and we talk and we dialogue, and that's what Paul is doing here. And so we see here the same thing that we've seen before in terms of the response Paul gets. Some are persuaded by Paul's reasoning, but also some became stubborn, right? Some people just don't want to hear it. They become stubborn. And so then when difficulty sets in, in this instance, Paul and, and the disciples, they don't flee, but instead, what do they do? They make arrangements to continue the dialogue, but they go to a rented space uh, belonging to a local philosopher named Tyrannus. Uh, now, on the surface, this move to the halls of Tyrannus does not seem very significant. It just looks like a change of venue to us. But this change 
is going to show us in this particular city Paul's aggressiveness and his determination in sort of uh, spiritually assaulting, if you will, the powers of darkness that he sees in Ephesus. So what we know is that according to some of the ancient manuscripts, now if you're reading in the ESV, which is the blue Bibles that are in the chairs uh, around you, there might be a footnote, or in the ESV there is a footnote, in your translation there might be as well, uh, in Acts 19.9, um, that uh, he rented Tyrannus' quarters from the fifth hour to the tenth. That's in some of the ancient manuscripts. Uh, and so that would be about from 11 a.m. to about 4 p.m. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever been to a, uh, another country in the world, but I have been to South America, and in that part of the world, they take a siesta in the middle of the day, uh, or they take a break in the middle of the day, right? Some of you are like, yeah, man, why don't we do that here? I don't know. We should, um, except that they work till like 9 o'clock at night, so there's that. But they would have started work around 7 in the morning, gone till about 10 or 11, uh, and then they would have taken a break from about 11 till about 4, uh, and, then, and then they continue work until the evening. And so that's what I saw when I was in Argentina. Uh, it was like in the middle of the day, it turned into like what you expect to see on a holiday here. Like everything is kind of just closed and it's just like chill out time, which is kind of awesome. And you have pastries and coffee and uh, in, in Argentina, you have mate, which is a drink that tastes horrendous. Um, but, but that's kind of the culture that's going on here. There is a siesta part of the day. There's a middle part of the day. And so what Paul does is he's renting the hall of Tyrannus during that section of time, right? And so Paul evidently would have been making tents. During the morning hours, he takes a break, he goes to the hall, he does this dialogue, he's doing his teaching and his interaction, and then he goes back to work making tents. Paul says in verse 20, or chapter 20, verse 34, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities, meaning I supported myself, is what he's saying. So understand the significance of this here. Religion, pagan religion is big business in Ephesus. Uh, it's kind of similar to today, right? There, there is religion that is big business. You see religious leaders being very wealthy. And so Paul is determined to keep himself free from any suspicion that he is in it for the money. This is him being uh, relevant to the place that he's going. He doesn't want that to become a roadblock for his ministry to the Ephesian people. And so uh, what we see again is that Paul is not in this for the short term. Look at verse 10. This continued for two years. Now, I read some estimates and some of the things I read this week about how much time Paul actually was giving, and it was something like about 130 days of nonstop teaching 24-7, if it was all compressed together, was how much free labor he was doing in terms of dialoguing for the sake of the gospel. So this is very, very, very um, time-consuming and sacrificial work that Paul is doing here. And so... Verse 10, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, I can guarantee that's going to cause some discussion on Friday night, <laughs> right? So Luke tells everyone, he tells us that everyone in Asia, now, pause this is the province surrounding like modern day Turkey, not the continent of Asia as we know it today. Still amazing, 
but it's not talking about the entire continent of Asia. But it says that everyone in this province heard the word of the Lord. Uh, so I think the equivalent would be like us thinking that one person showed up in the mid-Atlantic region, right? Uh, and, and everybody in the mid-Atlantic heard because of that one person's ministry. Pretty amazing, right? Pretty amazing. And so it's during this time that the seven churches that are named in Revelation 2 and 3, as well as many others uh, that we simply don't have record of, uh, would have come into being. That Christians would have gone probably out of Ephesus, back to where they were uh, coming from and, and having become rescued by Jesus. Uh, and so what, by any estimate that you want to put on it, what happened during those two years is pretty incredible. And, and pretty incredible for the growth of the gospel of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven, and the church. And so this advance of the gospel was accompanied by, and this is really important for us, the Greek says miracles not of an ordinary kind. So that's important for us to not do what some just in a little bit in the text are going to do. Okay? Some of these miracles are direct, meaning coming right from the hands of Paul. And then we have this text that we have to deal with where there's these indirect healings somehow being mediated through articles of clothing that Paul had, that it touched his skin. Now, there's some cool stuff with the language there about uh, these were basically sweat rags, and so that's symbolically God sort of honoring the character of Paul, much in the same way that the staff of Moses had some honor uh, because of the character of the person that God is using, not the object, right? Now, I, I don't know if you've ever experienced this or had the pleasure of receiving a prayer cloth in the mail. Anybody ever have this happen to you? Yeah, you can raise your hand. There's no shame in here, okay? Um, I, I have had that happen, and yes, there were a lot of jokes when it happened, uh, but I can remember the prayer cloth that was prayed over by some apostle and anointed with oil. It was literally a piece of paper folded up in an envelope and mailed to us at a church that I served at in Florida when I was in my early 20s, and I have the same response now as I did then, which is basically a hard eye roll. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, geez. Why? Well, that is exactly the opposite idea that one should have when reading this story if they simply keep reading beyond verse 13. This is not a formula for us to manufacture miracles with. Be very careful unless you would like to be counted in with the sons of Sceva and you don't, right? Luke describes for us, and we're going to get there, the terrible spiritual danger that you put yourself in when you try to manufacture and turn this into some kind of scheme for making money. Uh, God has very, very harsh words for those who would use the name of Jesus to turn a prophet. Be careful, See, Paul is not selling the handkerchiefs. He's not selling his April aprons to the local faithful, right? Somehow they're getting them from him or they're borrowing them and applying them to the sick. And God, at this particular moment in the history of the church, and I think for the sake of showing the Ephesians who are really into the occult, that there is a real God, God meets these particular people in their particular place with real miracles so that they might come to faith in him. Now, this means two things. Number one, this is the New Testament church. Miracles are part of what we believe God does in our world right now. We don't deny it. But this is not a formula to make miracles happen. 
This is a great place to apply our founder's thoughts when it comes to these kind of things. Seek not, forbid not. We're not running around looking for miracles behind every uh, door, but we by no means forbid them to happen. Who are we to say what God's going to do? Now, what we see next is a pretty wild story, kind of an awesome story uh, of what can happen when unqualified people in bad faith try to get in, so to speak, on the success of the power of the gospel. Look at verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, like that's a crazy job description, right? Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Now, here's what we got to know. Exorcism is a common trade going on. And the best exorcists were thought to kind of know about the more powerful spirits and kind of be in contact with them. And we see that stuff in our world even today, right? Um, and so it's, it's commonly believed on top of that, that Jewish priests would have had special access to the secret name of the God of Israel who was known all over the world so that they then had a special power over the spiritual world. So a Jewish priest who was an exorcist had like double honor in, in this sort of world. So this is a lucrative business and we see that this is a common thing going on in Ephesus by the language here. Look at the language. Notice that it says what? Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, some of them, so apparently there's a number of them and, and Luke is saying it like this is kind of a common thing. Yeah, you know the Jewish itinerant exorcists that were going around? Well, some of them, which means this is a normal kind of thing going on. So apparently, some of them had decided that seeing what Paul was doing, they were going to add the name of Jesus to their little routine to get a little extra juice. You know what I mean? A little, 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 some, little spice onto what they were doing. Let's throw Jesus on there. But as we've seen in other places uh, in Acts, and as we see as a general rule in the scriptures, God will not be mocked. And in other places in Acts, we see God not tolerate this kind of thing. And so we see God uh, gives us very, very, a, a very, very significant example of what can happen when we play around with this kind of nonsense. And we have to also say here, this is also not a formula, right? Because people do this now and they don't get beat up by demons as far as we know. It doesn't mean it's going to happen every time. It just is a description of the kind of thing that can happen if you play around with this. Verse 14. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them. Uh-oh. Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Now I want you to note this. An evil spirit never answered Jesus like this. There was never a battle between good and evil and who's going to win, Jesus or the evil spirits. No. When Jesus spoke to evil spirits, they were like, have you come to destroy us now? There's no question. But here, there's a question. So that seven sons of Sceva think they're maybe set up for an easy buck, right? Just do the same kind of fake incantation type of stuff they'd been probably doing for years, collect their money, and then they make a mistake and they invoke the name of Jesus. Now, put ourselves in the absolute panic of this moment for these guys, right? 
from, from what I have read preparing for this, they are likely used to not much happening here, right? That they are used to the demonic spirits sort of actually kind of working with them. And they may not even know that's what's happening. Uh, both parties have an interest in keeping this thing going, right? These guys obviously want to make some money, but the demonic spirits want to keep the people of Ephesus, and hear me, demonic spirits that exist in our world now want to keep you, if you are participating in this kind of stuff, they want to keep the people of Ephesus oppressed and under their power, so the demonic forces will make it look like these guys are doing something when they're not, in order to just kind of keep it going. So sure... When the brothers here first started, right, we can imagine they might have been a little nervous and doing some exorcism, what's going to happen. But then they've likely done it so many times that they get used to it and they really don't expect much to happen. Again, remember, this is about making a quick buck. This is their livelihood, their itinerant. They move from place to place and this is what they do. But then again, they invoke the name of Jesus and what happens next is wild. The person who's possessed by this demonic spirit suddenly speaks to them. Oh, I know who Jesus is, and I know who Paul is, but who are you? Who do you think that you are? You can't just use this name, right? And so imagine you're them. Absolute terror and panic. If a demon-possessed person says to you, oh yeah, I've heard the name of Jesus, but who are you? It's not going to be good. And so this is the absolute last thing you ever want to hear. And what we read next is terrifying, but also, can we admit, kind of a little comical? A little bit? The, the demon-possessed man beats them naked. That's crazy, right? So, like, maybe you've been in a scrap when you were a kid. Like, boys, we get in fights as kids, and then we're like best friends right after. I don't understand it, but it's how it is. Um, and, and let's say you get into a scrap with your friend and you started that scrap fully clothed and you ended that scrap naked, you lost. <laughs> That's just how it is. And if you're seven on one and seven of you end up naked and beaten, you lost big time, right? So can you imagine, like this story got told in the church, right? This story got told in the church over the days and weeks that followed. But now here's what's actually pretty interesting. The exorcist um, had been attacked by an evil spirit who should have been working with them. And so we start to see a chink in the armor of sort of uh, the kingdom of Satan, if you will. Because you may remember Jesus' words from the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 3, he says, If a house is divided against itself, that house will not stand. And so this moment here with the brothers is the first sign of weakness of the powers of darkness operating in Ephesus. Uh, look at verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, that's important, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Now this is counterintuitive to how we feel like the gospel of Jesus should spread, right? This is important to see in the text. It's actually the same thing we saw in the text back in Acts chapter 5 with the story of Ananias and Sapphira. It wasn't extraordinary miracles that bring on this healthy fear for people where the name of Jesus then becomes extolled. It's the knowledge that God will not be mocked. And it's the knowledge that judgment is a real thing. 
God will judge sin, and yet he always makes a way for us to receive grace. And so that knowledge is actually, in this case, what leads people to come to him. Verse 18 continues, And many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. That word divulging is important. This is telling of the dark stuff that's in you. And remember, this is now the believers doing this. Going, wow, God really won't be mocked. I have become desensitized to my secret sin. And now God has woken me up. Let me confess and repent. And so what's happening here is that the gospel is crashing again into these people's lives. And they are becoming sensitized to their sin. Right? And just like everywhere else in Acts, we see that the gospel being preached um, leads to different responses. Some will hate this feeling and, and sort of continue to rebel against it. Some will want to put it off, but hear more later. And then there are those who we see, like in verse 18, who actually come and repent, divulge what's going on with them, uh, and, and actually want to be free. Now, this, this work happens not just as we think of it to the unbeliever, but this happens in the church. This happens to us who follow Jesus. We continually come back to him. Sometimes there are moments in our lives of following Jesus, we would call these a crisis experience of faith in our tradition, in the Christian and Missionary Alliance. There are moments like this one in Acts 19 where our hidden stuff crashes into the gospel and all we can think to do is to throw ourselves again on, the, on God's mercy by confessing and repenting. That's what that divulging and confessing means. So what we see in Ephesus is that the church became sensitized again to its sin to such a degree that the people confessed their hidden sins to one another, abandoned their known evils, and as this is happening, unbelievers are starting to come to faith. Right? Unbelievers are seeing that there's a place where they can go, oh, you too? Yeah, me too. And God loves me. Verse 19, And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. This is very significant. It's, it's difficult to put into words for us how significant this is. This is the abandonment of their worldview. And they counted the value of them and, and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver, a humongous amount of money that they were willing to say, I don't want this anymore, I want Jesus. And so here's what we see, again, happening in Ephesus, and it's still true today, when the church seriously cleanses itself from sin, the deep, dark, secret stuff that we don't want anyone to find out about because then will they think, what will they think of me? That stuff, when those inside the church take that stuff seriously and practice confession, though there are some on the outside who will find that Irresistible, But you know what they will find very resistible? When we don't confess and we act like we're holy and we're not. That is very resistible. In fact, pushes people away. Nobody wants to be part of hypocrisy. Even though, welcome to the club, we're all hypocrites. So here's a question for us. What would be burned today if the Spirit's conviction fell on our church? 
What would be the equivalent for us in this room? What are the secret and hidden things that you are walking in right now that the Spirit came and that if the Spirit came and fell in power would need to be burned? What books of magic do you have? Right? Let me just read some things I wrote down and understand I'm just reading some things that I wrote down as examples. Maybe some of us need to stop watching what we're watching. Maybe some of us need to stop practicing gossip and slander that we practice. Maybe some of us need to stop sleeping with a person who is not our spouse and maybe even move out until we're married. Maybe some of us need to stop chasing after the approval of people. Maybe some of us need to change the relationship that we have with food and drink. Maybe some of us need to stop harboring hatred in our hearts towards other people. Maybe those are our books of magic. I could go on with a list of hundreds of things, right? This is not an exhaustive list. This isn't a particular list. This is just the things that came to mind as I was thinking and writing this week. I could go on and on. Now, if you're hearing that list, and maybe the Spirit is bringing something to the surface of your soul, and you're finding yourself getting a little frustrated with me that I brought this up, or maybe even just the idea of confessing and repenting, my challenge to you is to consider that as evidence of how enslaved to that you are. And that you're not walking in the freedom that the people in Ephesus, when they came and burned those books, walked in after that. Imagine the freedom and the power that we might be walking in if the healthy fear of the Lord comes over us, we confess these sins to one another, we repent, we realize that we're not a special kind of a sinner. All of us have deep, dark stuff that we don't want anyone to find out about. But as long as that stuff is taboo, it has power. As soon as we drag it by the grace of Jesus into the light of his gospel, it loses power over us and it becomes a story of God's grace that we retell. So imagine what that would do to our community of faith, but also imagine how many people would see a place where they can actually come to Christ for forgiveness of sins and deliverance because they see us walking in that and not walking in our secret stuff, acting like we're not walking in our secret stuff. It's a crazy game we play, isn't it? We want to look like something that we actually aren't because we're unwilling to do the thing that will actually let us be that thing. It's crazy. Verse 20 is really a summary of what any of us who cares about the gospel in the church should want deep down in our heart of hearts while fully understanding what this statement could mean for each of us. Look at verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Right? This is what we all should want. We should all want the word of the Lord, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that there's forgiveness of sins by the blood shed for you by Jesus and that what he is asking for from you is not religious activity. He's asking for your allegiance to him, that he be Lord of your life and savior of your life. That good news to continue to increase and prevail in mighty ways. But understand that in order for that to happen, the spiritual battles and the confession and the repentance that we saw in the story right before this also has to be present. 
That there's, if there's no real confession and divulging and repentance, we are simply the sons of Sceva playing a dangerous game that we don't want to play. Because God will not be mocked. You can't just tack Jesus onto your thing. He is Lord. He's not your spiritual rabbit's foot. It's not how this works. And at the same time as God will not be mocked, he has made a way for both mercy and justice to be true. And that way is the cross and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. That's how both can be true. God is just and the justifier of those who trust in Jesus. So as we saw in the text, whether it's for the first time, maybe today is the first time, and I want to implore you, if you haven't said yes to Jesus and you feel that tug, say yes today. Today is the day of salvation, the scripture says. But whether that's true for you for the first time or you've come to Jesus and you've been away from Jesus, which isn't actually a thing, but you might feel like that. For a long time, and, and as these words and as the scriptures read, the Spirit's bringing some stuff up to you that, man, it's just been a secret you've been hanging on to for a long time. If that's you, then the same path that exists for those who haven't come to Jesus for the first time yet exists for you, which is just come to Jesus. Come to him again. And then after that, come again after that. Over and over, you come and you throw yourself on him and you'd be willing to let go of anything that is keeping you from fully doing that. Now, I know, start talking about confession and repentance and some of us feel like, I wish I had some space to do that. And so I just want to take about a minute here as we wrap up our time together and give you some space to just be quiet in reflection, ask the Holy Spirit to bring those things to mind, those books of magic, if you will, to mind so that you can bring them to confession. And then we're going to confess together. Now, don't panic. I'm not going to ask you to divulge all your secrets in a room this size. That's unwise. But I'm going to put a prayer of confession on the screen that we can all say together. So take about a minute and just quiet reflection and pray. Why don't you bring your eyes up to the screen? Let's say this together. Refining God, you have sent us your messengers and we have not always listened. We have not always determined what is best or made way for your reign in our lives, our church, and our society. Forgive us, we pray, and keep your covenant with us for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Father, we thank you again for your word to us, for, your, um, for, the, for the word that we have that describes what life in the spirit can look like. And Father, I just pray that as we read these stories from the book of Acts, we wouldn't put them in the category of old ancient history that has nothing relevant for me today, but we would see them as what potentially the norm could look like in our lives of moving in the spirit's power. Holy Spirit, for those of us who weren't raised in a church environment where this was talked about very much, uh, would you give us the willingness to go a little bit further than we're comfortable with? And maybe, Father, there are those in this room who are wondering when we're finally going to invite the Spirit into our presence. And for those of us who are in that category, Lord, would you make us gracious and patient as we wait for the rest of us to come along? 
Lord, we want to honor you in all that we do. We want to honor you with the way that we do things. And so, uh, Lord, we just ask that this, um, th- this spirit that we can kind of sense in the room right now of confession and repentance would go out with us from here, uh, that it would be with us as we take uh, the Lord's Supper in just a few minutes, and that it would guide us as we go out this week and as we attempt to see people far from you come to know you because we're, uh, we are spreading your message and your word and your presence in our world. And we pray all this in your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.